So the reading is from Luke, chapter 21, and can be found in the Bibles and the Pews and page 1056. So that's 1056, Luke 21, and we start at at verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he. And this is the time, the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be a great there will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and on all account and on all account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem is being surrounded by armies, you will know that that desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfilment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be for those, for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be a great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexed at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, And lift your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with depression with dissipation, drunkenness and anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap for it will come upon all who live on the face of the earth be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you will be able to stand before the son of the man this is the word of the Lord Let's pray first of all. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us clarity and understanding so that we can focus our minds on the great event that is yet to come and orientate ourselves and the way we think and believe around that great expectation. Amen. Right, well, um, Luke 21, 5 to 36 In Luke's Gospel, we're moving towards the climax, which we'll reach at the Ascension, and um, we will finish Luke's Gospel in two months' time. As we do, we'll notice a number of what have previously been rather minor things, assuming much greater significance. So, for example, Jesus and the Jewish religious system are involved in a fight to the death The conflict began right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when he went public, about three years before he's uh, teaching this. And we've seen it numerous times throughout those three years, and now it becomes crucial. Another theme is developed further, and that is exactly who is Jesus, trying to uh, understand his nature And it becomes clearer that he is not just a Davidic Messiah set to restore the fortunes of God's people, but that he's also the suffering servant who restores theirs and others' fortunes with God by means of taking their sins upon himself and suffering for them. He's taught it must happen, and now it will happen. Today we'll see how Jesus also blended into those two figures that you'll find quite prominent in the Old Testament, the Son of Man coming down from heaven to restore his rightful authority at the end of time. The reason why so many, when we first start to look into the Christian faith, find it difficult to completely suss out Jesus is that we don't understand initially fully who he was. In other words, our image of him is too partial. And a third minor theme is that, uh, that becomes full-blown is that the nation of Israel will be judged for their refusal to recognise and accept Jesus. Some of them didn't recognise him, others of them did recognise him but they did not accept him. And Jesus warned them of the danger. And he called 12 apostles to be the nucleus of a new Israel, to replace the nation of Israel 
as the people of God. Now, um, uh, Luke 21 is where Jesus teaches his disciples about the signs and timing of the end. And it's all focused on Jerusalem. And Jesus is in the temple area teaching. And some of the disciples from Galilee who've uh, come up for the Passover with him think how nice the place is. I mean, it's a remarkable contrast to, um, to life up in the Galilee. I mean, it's like perhaps comparing... Does Basingstoke have any really exceptional architecture? Well, I, I quite like the, uh, the, the, what used to be the Sun Life of Canada building, I think it's, and, and the Mount Batten building with its hanging gardens. They're rather nice. They contrast quite grand in comparison with, say, an 1880s little terraced house in one of the few older parts of Basingstoke. It's that kind of big contrast. They are kind of impressed with uh, the temple. But Jesus, in verse 6, makes the point that it's all going to be demolished. It's going to be destroyed. Not one stone here will be left on another, he says. Everyone will be thrown down. There's a very uh, well-known view of Jerusalem. Of course, the Golden Dome is not the temple. It's a mosque built in about the 630s. AD or 730s, it is the Dome of the Rock because it is a, a site while sacred to Jews, Christians and Muslims, it has Muslim uh, places of worship on it, none other. And the disciples naturally ask, verse 7, when is this all going to happen? And what are the signs that will indicate that it's about to take place? Now you probably noticed when it was being read to you that it was a little confusing. There wasn't anything wrong with you. It is confusing. So some clarification. So let's try and make sense of... uh, Luke 21. You see, there are two ends that Jesus is talking about in the same chapter. Some parts of it, verses 20 to 24, for example, seem to be about an historical destruction of Jerusalem, an event in history from which it's possible to flee from and maybe even escape from, but the world will then go on with the Gentiles ruling Jerusalem. And yet elsewhere, if you look at verse 25 and following, there appears to be a global event, an event at the end of history that will come upon the whole earth, verse 35. So there are two different ends being written about here. But there are also three sets of events. There appear to be some signs which are linked to the end of Jerusalem. So, for example, verse 20, it's going to be surrounded by armies. Then, secondly, there appear to be some signs which are truly apocalyptic, linked to the very end of the world. For example, 26, heavenly bodies shaken, and the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and great glory, verse 27. And then there are, in the earlier part, 
some signs which appear to be with us all the time. So take verse 8, for example. Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So, to make sense of it all, we have to remember that there are three sets of events relating to two different ends. There are events that are signs of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. This is the response that Jesus gives to the disciples' question. And secondly, there are events associated with the very end of the age. In other words, the day that Christ returns and he creates a new heaven and a new earth, about which there's not actually very much in this chapter. He said most of it back in chapter 17. And then there are events which are not signs of either of these ends, even if they are often taken to be such. So verse 7, the disciples ask the questions about when will the temple be destroyed and how are they now, how will they know it's about to happen? Well, it's the second question that Jesus focuses on and uh, here. And briefly, verse 32, he touches on the timing by saying, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things happened. And uh, he was dead right. Forty years later, in the days of the Jewish revolt uh, in 66 to 70 AD, you might associate that with the, uh, the Roman conquest of Masada, which in Israeli history is kind of, you know, the event. If D-Day this coming week is a big event in our history, which it is, as you think, you know, four years before D-Day, the Nazis were 21 miles away from Dover and we look like we're going to be um, invaded. Well, to the Israelis, Masada is iconic for them and that fell in 70 AD. But the temple in Jerusalem, they were destroyed by Titus who flattened the whole lot a couple of years before. And he left one tower standing, which is still there today, Faisal, just to demonstrate, to give some indication of how grand that city was and yet how little was left after the Roman legions had done their worst. So Jesus' main thrust here, the key issue in all this discourse, is to tell his disciples how they should live while they wait for the end. So as we look at the text together, we see first of all some events which are often wrongly taken as signs of the end, false messiahs, wars and revolutions. These things must happen, but the end will not happen right away. In fact, those things happened before Jesus ever arrived and have happened when he was around and they continue to happen. And then he adds, verse 10, about international disputes, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, fearful events, and signs from heaven. Now, they may have had in mind the events after 70 AD, as the faith spread to the Gentile nations, and they have happened ever since. We may know when and why such things as Halley's Comet whiz across at a very predictable time, 
Well, I say we. I don't, it's the royal we, you know, those who kind of, you know, are into cosmology and physics and stuff, who in astronomy, who know that stuff. I've no idea when it's coming back, but um, for those who do know, it's nothing to worry about. But if you don't know, boy, things like comets and eclipse of the sun, when it all goes dark in the middle of the day, you think, gosh, what's happening? You know, a little bit of uh, panic strikes you. could be very disturbing. Indeed, throughout history, when men like Napoleon and Hitler and Stalin have arisen, people have actually wondered whether the end of the world was near. It was so awful, so totalitarian and so brutal. It's a natural way to think if you fear that you are likely to be overrun by your enemy. However, while they were uh, waiting for the end to arrive, Christians will have to face persecution as well as natural disasters and wars. Verse 12, before all this, the false messiahs, wars and natural disaster, they will deliver you, Jesus says, to synagogues and to prisons and bring you before kings and governors. Now why will this happen to Christians? all on account of my name. It's because we're associated with Jesus Christ. Verse 13, this will result in you, you being witnesses to, to them. Maybe that was the only way in which some people could actually be reached for the gospel. There are occasions in history when somebody has been hauled up before somebody in authority and that has given them the opportunity to speak, and that's the first time that person will have ever heard the Christian message. And although some awful fate may befall the person who's on trial, that official has come to faith subsequently. Verse 14, don't worry about how to defend yourself beforehand. I will give you the words, verse 15, of wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You see, they have no argument against the Christians. It's just downright prejudice in the end. And we today must not be shouted down. Rational debate and evidence is our ally. Solzhenitsyn said, when he lived under the, uh, the Soviet Union, he was in the gulags and he wrote his books. He said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. And he was right. Communism fell in 1989. The wall came down. The Soviet Union is no more. Russia is still quite powerful, but nothing like what it once was. Verse 16, they face betrayal by friends and family. Some will be martyred. All men will hate you because of me. By standing firm, though, you will gain life. In the early church, there was great persecution. Not all the time, but at certain times, there were kind of definite spikes in it. And one Christian who died for his faith was Justin Martyr. He died in the uh, middle of the second century. And here's an excerpt of what he said just before he died. He was born in Nablus, which is in the West Bank today. Um, it's ancient Shechem. But he was uh, 
killed in Rome. The Roman prefect said to him, You are said to be a learned man and think you are acquainted with true doctrine. If you should be scourged and beheaded, are you persuaded that you will ascend to heaven? Do you think you will ascend into heaven and receive certain rewards? Justin replied, I don't think, I know, and I am fully persuaded. And he could say that because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was his evidence to know that what Jesus said and taught was true. And that by entrusting his life, he was not just entrusting this life, but his whole eternal life to Jesus. He was confident. He knew he had risen from the dead. You ask uh, that that it seems unreasonable. Why should people have it in for Christians? After all, Jesus Christ only went around doing good for people. So why this reaction against Christians at certain times in history over the last 2,000 years? Well, it's easy to forget one thing, and that is that Jesus can only really help us... um, Well, I'm sorry, that Jesus can only really do us good if we let him. And that involves surrendering our autonomy, our independence, our rugged individualism that says, basically, I'll do what I want. You know, you hear people say that, well, a certain age group says that quite frequently, at least in my experience. Maybe, maybe going well on into um, certain ages. Anyway, but the um, thing is, we have to submit to his authority. And that is something we are so reluctant to do. We don't want to give in to it. So everything within us resolves to repel the heavenly invader. We want to keep him out. He must not get in. We don't even want to hear about him. And we certainly don't want to be reminded of him. But who is likely to remind us of him, even without opening their mouth? An exemplary Christian at work or at college or at school or wherever. There's a quality about them and they're a reminder. And of course, if you give them the chance to speak and explain the reason for the hope that lies within you, oh gosh, keep away from me, don't disturb You know, my sense of, uh, well, it isn't peace, but it's a kind of, I'm settled. Don't please disturb me. Well, the Christian if the person doesn't kind of turn to Christ, could well possibly want to get rid of you. And it starts just by cold-shouldering you. You know, they don't really want anything to do with you. They don't invite you to some of the things which, are, you know, they've got the option to invite you to. But of course, at the other end of this spectrum, for somebody like Justin, it was actually martyrdom. As it is today, I think, what is it, that uh, report that Jeremy Hunt, kind of, he set up a, a commission to look into Christian persecution and how the Foreign and Commonwealth Office might respond to it. I think it says there's about 
250,000 Christians who die for their faith during the course of a year. You know, places like Iran, Iraq, Indonesia, Sudan, you know, they represented something that fundamentalist Islam could not tolerate. Now, what would those martyrs make of verse 18? But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. You know what I think? They would agree. Sure, they would have been killed for their faith, but they now enjoy eternal life with Christ. They have lost a little time on earth. But the rest would have been total gain. There are going to be difficult times this side of the return of Christ. But Jesus says, stand firm and eternal life will be yours, Jesus promises. There will be temptations to go after false teachers. There will be international environmental disasters, the like of which we are beginning to see. That doesn't mean the end's near. There will be, of course, as always, personal tragedy. This is a fallen world. This, Jesus is saying, will be par for the course, this side of eternity. Stand firm and you will gain life. And next, uh, having looked at the events which are not signs of the end, he moves in verses 20 to 24 to answer the disciples' original question. How will we know when is Jerusalem about to fall? and the temple to be destroyed. And Jesus' answer, verse 20, is when it's surrounded by armies. In other words, don't worry, it'll be pretty obvious. And what should Christians do when they see that is beginning to happen? Pretty good advice. Flee to the mountains, which is exactly what the Christian church did do just before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temples. The Christians got out. Eusebius of Caesarea was um, a Christian who wrote around 380. He's a historian of the early Christian church and one of our primary sources. And uh, this is what uh, he wrote. But before the war, that's the 66, uh, 70 AD Roman Jewish war, the people of the church of Jerusalem were bidden by an oracle given by revelation to men worthy of it to depart from the city and to dwell in a city of Perea called Pella, just on the river Jordan, midway between the Galilee and the Dead Sea. To it, those who believed in Christ migrated from Jerusalem. Once the holy men had completely left, the Jews and all Judea, the justice of God at last overtook them since they had committed such transgressions against Christ and his apostles. Divine justice completely blotted out that impious generation from among men, Eusebius writes. Well, why will it be done? Verse 22, well, for punishment. God had warned the Jews. Jesus had warned the Jews. They rebelled against God and they rejected their Messiah. So their special privilege as the people of God for the previous 2,000 years will be taken and given to others. Messianic Jews, that is Jews who did respond 
positively to Jesus as the Messiah, such as the apostles. But also, the great hope of uh, God's through Abraham was that now was the time to fulfill that prophecy that all nations of the world would be drawn in to a relationship with God himself. But the fall of Jerusalem didn't usher in the end of the world. These two ends are quite distinct. Jerusalem carried on, but under Gentile rule. But the end of the world will come, verse 25, and we know that's the end Jesus has now turned to as he talks about it in um, apocalyptic language. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 34, for example. And he says, At the end there will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in in a cloud of power and great glory. See, at the very end, when none of us know when it will be, not even Jesus knew, so you can be sure of one thing, anybody who does say is wrong, At the very end, there will be a cataclysmic cosmological set of events, the like of which we have never seen. And once they start, the end of the world will be imminent. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your head, because your redemption is drawing near. Just as when plants, like figs, verse 29, sprout leaves, you know that summer is on the way, as this parable of the fig tree teaches. So the signs of this age and the fall of Jerusalem here in verse 32 are within a generation and God's kingdom may come at any time after that. I think it's quite clear that these things are the events leading up to the fall of Jerusalem because verse 31, they are clearly distinct from the coming of the kingdom at the end of time. The main thrust of all this is not for our speculation or for a kind of ancient history lesson. It is to guide us into how to live in this age before the second coming of Jesus. After the fall of Jerusalem, the kingdom is nearer, which means there's nothing else of great importance to happen. The end, with its cataclysmic cosmology, is the next major item on the agenda of world history. And it can happen any time after the fall of Jerusalem around 67, 68 AD. So as they face hard times, Jesus' disciples can have hope. But while you're waiting, you must not Be distracted, he says. Verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life so that they will be caught unawares when Jesus returns. You know, I've had some of these experiences. You know, I meant to get that clutch fixed and here I am at 10 o'clock at night sitting in the middle of Salisbury Plain. (laughs) Regret, distracted, should have got it done, shouldn't I really? Bad news. Or, I meant getting getting the guttering fixed at the end of the summer, but now the autumn rains have turned up and they're coming inside the house. 
not going down the drain pipes. Distracted, and then we're caught out. The antidote is, he says, to keep watch, to be on the lookout. In those days, cities had watchmen, and they would be up at night just in case any enemy were to creep up, and they'd be caught out. We're to pray. They, they were to pray that they would escape the destruction of Jerusalem. And those who listened did escape that. And then they were able to stand before the Son of Man when he returns. So, some implications as we close. Thinking about the second coming of Christ and being focused on his return um, does help us to see to have the right perspective on this life we're living now. I'm sure if you're a young couple and you've got a hundred days to go before you get married, that that will be your dominant thought. That is what you're focused on, and rightly so. Everything else is insignificant in comparison to that. Well, of course, for the Christian and Christ's return, it is like the bridegroom meeting the bride. Some of you may be focused on the arrival of a little one, and that is a focus of your attention. Others of you, it may be focused on a new job, which might involve moving. Others of you, it may be counting your days to retirement. All important, but all of those things are short-sighted if we first and foremost aren't focused on the fact that Christ will return and we will all have to face him. It is the bigger picture, the end of the world, the coming of Christ, which should be our dominant point from which we perceive everything about life. It is of the greatest importance to be watching and waiting for that event, rather than to be caught up because we've taken our eyes off of it and we've allowed ourselves to drift. The second thing, focusing on life to come helps us perhaps surprisingly to cope with disasters and suffering that may come our way. Knowing that the end is in sight, that paradise will return with Christ and that we will enjoy it forever together enables us to hang on with hope through what are, after all, temporary difficulties. And thirdly, taking this teaching of Jesus on board also helps us to stay on track following him. He's given us a picture of reality. Things may sometimes be bad. They could be particularly bad for Christians, but that is reality. People may go after new ideas and ideologies to suit their itching ears. People may be tempted to think the whole thing is pointless, both of which are wrong reactions. And finally... This perspective, I think, inspires us to make the very best use of our lives now so that they do make a difference, not only to us, but to those who are in our orbit of influence. Take Lord Shaftesbury, for example. He was a great social reformer in the 19th century. He was loved by the people because of the kind of factory acts and mine acts and whatever else he got through Parliament. And he was also a great supporter of Christian mission. And he did both because he was focused upon the Lord's return. He wrote, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour 
that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. While he was more heavenly minded so that he could be more earthly use. Remember, the Lord could come at any time, but you can be certain that he will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see uh, this life from the perspective of the end of time, when Christ will return, when we give account. Pray that we might have faith in him to enjoy the new creation, the new heaven and earth, and to play our part in it. But in the meantime, help us to make our lives ones which uh, contribute to the good of mankind, both materially and spiritually. Amen.